Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, this is going to go up just in time for, I think, the end of Milan's Fashion Week. I hope all things working as they should be. Um, <laughs> the sort of our lazy editor, I'll give them a kick just to make yeah. sure. But um, <laughs> no, no. we're going to start there are out. many things going on. Yes. It's yes. a complicated time of year, but yes. it always is. Holidays, New Year's. New Year's, yeah. Things. This project is always a labor of love. Yes. So um, it feels like the beginning of a pitch for like starting a Patreon to get people to <laughs> donate so we can hire an editor, but. Oh, ah, that's not. I can't. I can't advertise any more things. <laughs> uh-huh. Um. Okay. So today we're going to talk about some more fashion don'ts in Italy yes. this time, and then yes. we're also going to talk about fashion do's, because I yes. know everybody loves a list that tells you the correct things to wear, mm-hmm. um, in order to be super with it yep as the kids say if you want to be hip if you want to be cool yes all right yes no cap here we go (laughs) yeah so we have been talking about sumptuary laws um england has some really well laid laid out sumptuary laws we went over those last time yeah all for Um, men which is very interesting actually yes um, and of course, on some level, it's because they are the hierarchy, right? That's mm-hmm. sort of how you keep society in line. But on the other hand, not exclusively, because yes, we'll see other places, women definitely come in for a lot of stuff. So um, that this, it's much more kind of about where are you in the class hierarchy? What should you be wearing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then like your wives and children should be wearing the same level of stuff. Um, yeah. And the sort of funny aspect of course just of english record keeping that we have a lot of these records i mean that we have Mm -hmm. them all still basically right um so it definitely makes for uh a very good picture Mm -hmm. a lot of it is economic as well so we sort of talked about that um even though there's clearly elements of social control so who can wear purple who can wear gold who can gold cloth right who can wear these things um there is also we did say a little bit right like the policing of men's bodies Mm -hmm. you're not supposed to be wearing stuff that's too short that shows off things you shouldn't be showing off (laughs) um or at least according to society right modesty is a thing um but for men right yeah and we're so used to that for women um so there's some really funny things about some of these laws that people don't usually think of and the economics is definitely part of that as well. So we sort of talked about um, the fact that a lot of it is, first of all, of course, the growing merchant class, middle class, mm-hmm. who have the money to buy whatever they want, but not the rank, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, now, obviously, as you get rich, you can start to buy your way up the ranks. I mean, you yeah. can start to like buy yourself a coat of arms and all this stuff, mm-hmm. but... Um, that, you know, you have to sort of make it official. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can start wearing the stuff of that, right? You have to get made a knight, and then you can start wearing that stuff. Mm-hmm. I know um, by the time of, like, Queen Victoria, I mean, obviously that sumptuary laws were kind of a thing of the past, but they did use the title um, baronet, right? Mm-hmm. That it was sort yeah. of a thing that you gave to very successful merchants and the like. Yeah. It's not, it's not, no, it's in a noble title. It doesn't give you, like precedence or something but it does give you more social standing yes because you have money yes um and obviously i mean at this you know you can people start getting knighted as has always been true for achievement Mm -hmm. but that becomes more and more the way you get knighted which is to say you tend not to be knighted anymore because you're expected to raise soldiers (laughs) in battle (laughs) you start to get knighted because you did something really cool and made England look good. Yes. Um, or at least made England look good to themselves, right? Not always to others, but... 
Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, and Olivier, of course, famously gets made a lord, which mm-hmm. is, was unusual. Um, I think Sir Henry Irving, I think, is the first actor, maybe, to be knighted. Um, you know, as a profession, it has not always been viewed with the greatest uh, <laughs> distinction when it comes right. to morality. Um, which is, of course, unfair. <laughs> I mean, it's not like painters are somehow better people. But anyhow, um, you know, uh, Olivier does famously get made a lord. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, exactly. And then, of course, it's not, it's not, yes, it doesn't then bestow upon you the hereditary rights of this, that, and the other. I mean, <laughs> it's just, just you. Um, but yeah. So, um, Absolutely. So that's so that's sort of England, right? Mm-hmm. It's about really the economics of it. Who can buy what? Um, a lot of it seems to also be based just in the supreme annoyance of of the upper classes mm-hmm. <laughs> that if anyone can buy stuff, things become more expensive because these are right. goods that are scarce, right? There is a scarcity to these things. Purple is a rare dye. Gold cloth, of course, is rare. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you can't necessarily just make more of it. Certainly not on the scale that there are suddenly people to buy it. Right. So therefore the price goes up. Um, and that's really what annoyed, that really seems to be kind of the origin a lot of, of a lot of England sumptuary laws is this <laughs> annoyance at the price going up. Stop um, shopping. Yes. And among the sumptuary laws are also other laws that are just about trade. Mm-hmm. Right. So you can't import x y and z anymore you have to buy it from home and we talked sort of about like the silk weavers and stuff right so protecting home trades and right the Mm -hmm. the women um you know who do this stuff like that so um yeah so it becomes a whole um (laughs) sort of economic element here Mm -hmm. um in ways that maybe we don't always acknowledge or think about when we when we think about sumptuary laws um that being said of course the other types of sumptuary laws also exist. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, I guess we might as well start with the one. We mentioned this at the end, and we might as well start here because, you know, and then we'll end with some fun stuff this episode. But we, we're we going to start with um, specific groups. Mm-hmm. In this case, this is a little different. Sumptuary laws are usually seen as X, Y, and Z cannot wear these things. Right. But sometimes that goes along with not only can you not wear these things, but also you must wear these things. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And of course, that tends to be true of religious groups. It can be in a we're going to talk about a few versions of this. So it can be in a more, I guess, (laughs) positive sense, sort of, which is to say um, all the the orders. Right. Monks, Mm -hmm. nuns. um, They definitely have rules on what you can and cannot wear. Um. And this is very much part of the group identity mm-hmm. and also the religious identity. Sure. Right. So we sort of talked about wearing white. We're actually going to come back to that. Um, some groups do eventually start wearing white, but some groups also are prohibited from it mm-hmm. for all the reasons we kind of talked about. Um, but then there is, of course, some of the, the negative stuff here. So, um, for example, probably most, most famously, um, Fourth Lateran Council. In 1215, um, this is the sort of thing we have talked about before, because um, most famously, I guess, <laughs> really, uh, it's the the council that institutes transubstantiation. Ah, yes. Yeah. That thing. So, yes. Fourth Lateran decides that transubstantiation is a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's going to be something that you believe in now. Which again feels like very recent, honestly, for the Catholic Church. Yes. Yeah. Well, and it's only a couple hundred years after marriage for priests. Yeah. Right? Which at this point, of course, has been around for about a thousand years, Mm -hmm. but also wasn't around for about a thousand years. Um, And it's worth pointing out, of course, that this is why um, priests and other traditions can get married. Mm -hmm. So it's something we talk about, like, for example... (laughs) um, when I take students to Greece. Yeah. Right. Greek Orthodox priests can get married, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is, yeah, the Orthodox 
church allows priests to marry. Um, they are supposed to get married before they're ordained. Oh. Which is to say, um, yeah. So, um... So you can't be, like, on a kinder if you're already <laughs> a, a priest. Yes. Yes. Um, and it's, it's, um, you know, and you're, it's sort of, right, your wife agrees that you can, I mean, basically that you can become ordained as a priest. Okay. Um, yeah, so it becomes Seems a sort fair. of, right, it's a family thing. Um, however, uh, the, the higher orders, like, if you're gonna work your way up the ranks. Yeah. Um, become, like, a, a bishop or something, um, then you're supposed to be celibate. Um, okay. but you, and theoretically unmarried, but, um, I think you could technically be widowed. Hmm. Yeah. There are some saints in the Catholic Church who were married and, like, had several children and before they devoted themselves to, um... Oh, for sure. To being saintly, I guess. And I Absolutely. think they were said to have lived celibately after that. Yes. Oh, that becomes very common for mm -hmm. holy men and women. Yeah. Who are married to then become celibate. Marjorie Kemp does this. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, there are a lot of famous women who are, who become saints, who, yeah, have a lot of kids. Um, some of them, then their kids also become saints, mm -hmm. famously. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, but the that's sort of the also the reminder though that right for the for orthodoxy and by that I mean capital O right so the Orthodox Church right um, ostensibly sort of one of the reasons is that when you work your way that far up the hierarchy you shouldn't be worried about your own family mm -hmm. right in the West the idea of that no priest can get married I mean theoretically before that which is why of course in the Orthodox tradition you still can get married. Priest, being a priest and being a monk were two different things. Yes. The problem is it did kind of become a bit of a power struggle, right? Um, and that is sort of why then priests, that is why that happens. Yeah. Monks kind of win that struggle that priests also should not be allowed to get married, have families pass on good stuff like, you know, that mm -hmm. that, um, that becomes an aspect of that. I do know um, that today... Um, there is a thing where if you're a member of the clergy from a different Christian denomination and you're married mm -hmm. and then you convert to Catholicism, you can become a priest and still be married because yeah. there's an right. excellent memoir by Patricia Lockwood called mm -hmm. Priest Daddy, mm -hmm. all one word. And I yeah. just want to recommend it. It's super funny. It's just like <laughs> the most, like, I was so jealous when I read it. I was like, I cannot believe somebody has written something this good and this funny. But it's also <laughs> about, like, she was, you know, like the oldest. No, not the oldest. She was like one of five kids of this guy mm -hmm. who wound up doing this. Mm -hmm. And sure, sure. so he was a, he was a Catholic priest yeah. in, uh, in Missouri eventually. Oh, cool. So, yeah. Neat. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I also, I just want to give a shout out, um, when I was talking, so Birgitta of Sweden, mm -hmm. also Bridget of Sweden, um, her daughter is St. Catherine of Sweden. Yeah. So that's just a good example of, yes. <laughs> right. But yeah, at some point you choose to be chaste, etc. Um, but yeah, but anyway, so, um, the, the differences in, in tradition, um, yeah, have a lot of importance. And so this is obviously another aspect of that, right? The the East and the West have already sort of started to split. Yeah. Of course. But yes, the West starts to do these things that are absolutely still with us. And of course, it's worth pointing out that when Protestantism comes along, it will then uh take back some of these things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So, obviously, Protestant priests or ministers can get married. Transubstantiation, yeah. transubstantiation is not something that the Protestant church believes in. It's believed to be metaphoric, right? Um, so, yeah, so we, this is the, the period where we are barking upon when the Catholic church is making decisions that not everyone agrees with. And ultimately, that will, down the road, a ways, cause a big, big old schism. In the Western Church. A bit of a fracas, um, really. 
Yes, <laughs> a bit. <laughs> a few wars. Anyway. Um, but yeah, so... <clears throat> 1215, fourth ladder, and that's transubstantiation. Um, but also, <laughs> um, there are some parts of it devoted to um, sumptuary laws, basically. Dress codes. Okay. Um, and this is, and other things that Jews are required to do. Oh. Um, yeah. So one of the things, so Jews are required to make tithes and offerings to churches. Ooh. Um yeah, fight me, dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like paying your taxes, sure, right? okay. Everyone else has to tax, and so Jews, just because they don't go to church, you still have to pay taxes, taxes, you know. But obviously, yes, it's a problem. There is no separation between church and state. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but anyways. And so, um, also it's like, you know, if, in as much as, right, if Jews are moneylenders... Then also, are they, right, some of the interest they're making on Christian money should go to the church, right? They're holding Christian money that should be tied to the church. You know. Anyway. Yeah. These are the, the things. So, um, okay, so there's what I think. But another aspect, right, um, Jews and Saracens of both sexes in every Christian province must be distinguished from the Christian by difference of dress. Okay. On Passion Sunday, that of course is Easter, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the last three days of Holy Week, they may not appear in public. Oh. Yeah. That's... This, now, these laws become really famous, but they are not um, upheld everywhere. Uh-huh. Right? They're enforced in some places and not in others. So that is a very important point to make, as with transubstantiation. I mean, it's a slow burn. Some people, of course, never really go for it and that's how you get protestants right um so there are there are places where this is enforced and there are places where this is not enforced um the dress code is something this is not the first time the dress code has shown up um or the prohibition of jews going out on certain christian holidays Mm -hmm. easter mostly easter or whole parts of holy week um so this is something that these have been put out before and they will get put out again um, I think maybe as early as like 581, mm-hmm. um, the sort of, you know, um, Jews shouldn't go out on Easter or the end of Holy Week. Um, and again, this is, you know, these things will come back in the future. Um, and of course the aspects of the dress code get more specific mm-hmm. in various places, um, that do uphold it. Um, so yeah, it's not real clear on what you're supposed to do, um, but it, it basically, it just says, you know, there are places where Jews do dress differently from Christians, but in other places they don't, which means they can be confused. Um, and at times, through error, Christians have relations with the women of Jews or Saracens, and Jews and Saracens with Christian women. Therefore, right, they have to look different. Wow. So that there is no error. <laughs> yeah. Boy, do I not see that reducing the number of relations somehow. Oh, of course but... not. Please. <laughs> um, these things never do. I mean, you know, I I mean, just sort of a few weeks ago, um, there's an opera that's being written, mm-hmm. composed, about Loving v. Virginia. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, laws, of course, don't work, you know. I mean, (laughs) they just, they make a point, though, about how society views itself, Mm -hmm. Um, essentially. Um, This also points out that, of course, in Numbers 15, 37 to 41, is all the stuff about, you know, tassels on your clothing, etc. Right? So, basically, this is saying, like, Jews should wear the traditional dress they're supposed to wear, and then that would take care of it. This is a reminder, of course, that a lot of Jews are not doing that. Right? Um, and I, at this moment, would like to bring up, which I do a lot, so I will bring it up again, which is, um, at the end of The Merchant of Venice, there, which of course, yes, that's Shakespeare, so it's much later, but mm-hmm. the point holds, um, Portia walks in, and of course it's in Italy, so, <laughs> you know, not in England, um, Portia walks in to the courtroom and says, which is the merchant here and which the Jew? Mm-hmm. And in some productions, that line 
is a laugh line. Like the, you know, the other people on stage groan and roll their eyes like, oh my god, here's a lawyer who doesn't even know uh. the Jew and she sees one. Well, he sees one. She's disguised as a male lawyer, of course. Anyway, um, which is complete BS. That is not what that line is. The point is, arguably, on some level, when Portia walks in, she does expect to be able to tell which is which. Mm-hmm. And she can't because they look the same. They're both merchants. Right. Basically. Right? That is the class they both are. <laughs> Antonio is a merchant. Actually, and of course, Shylock is, you know, a moneylender. But yeah, they're the same class. They look the same. Mm-hmm. They're dressed the same. Um, so just the sort of reminder that, um, as with today, mm-hmm. right? Even, you know, Orthodox Jews may not look any different from anyone else. Right. Right. I mean, people um, see, like, Chabadniks right. or whatever, black hatters, as right. Michael Chabon yep. put it. Um, yes. That, that you know, they're, there's a whole category of Jew called the modern Orthodox, where they just dress in, like, normal, you know, of course. normal clothes. Yes. Yeah. And particularly, like, if it's winter and everyone's wearing hats. Right. You can't tell who has kippot, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And of course, this is the Middle Ages. Everyone's, not every, but, but lots of people are wearing hats. They're all wearing head coverings. So they're probably not wearing kippot because everyone's wearing a head covering. Right. You're not wearing anything special. Right. You're just wearing a hat. Like everybody else is wearing a hat. So, um, yeah. So the reminder that people look the same. Yeah. Um, so this is a kind of important um, element of this, right? But this is one of those moments where... Um, yeah, the sort of stated that there should be a distinction in dress. Yeah. Um, and obviously, eventually, like, um, a little bit later, um, in 1227, um, there'll be a synod that says that, um, Jews should wear an oval badge, Mm. you know, on their garments, and it sort of gives how big it should be. Like, one finger in width and half a palm in height. Um, Not cool, dude. But the color isn't necessarily specific, right? Obviously, it in illustrations, of course, it, it becomes, it's yellow. Mm-hmm. Which is one of the ways we do come to associate yellow. You know, that becomes a color. Oh, um, okay. And, that wasn't just you know, eventually that is, yeah, eventually that is sometimes specified. But, mm-hmm. um... Yeah, it starts with just sort of a distinction in dress, and then some places do move to have kind of a, a badge that marks you, and then that sort of... But, um, but yeah, anyway, so this is the sort of reminder of how, how some of these things happened. Yeah, so that happens. Um, but then there are other things. <laughs> um, so that will go into, like, the the one that has a little bit... Not exclusively, but a little more to do, for example, with with women. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we're talking about Italy, fashion, of course. Um, we've just talked about the Merchant of Venice. Yeah, so Italy, of course, has always been a fashionable place. Um, the Venetian Senate <laughs> in 1443. Um, oh, by the way, this is Diane Owen Hughes, um, who wrote an article called Sumptuary Law and Social Relations in Renaissance Italy. Okay. Yes. And this is in another book that's edited by John Bossi. Um, but yeah, so uh, in the Venetian Senate in 1443 um, forbade women to wear dresses cut from cloth of gold or silver. Um, but then <laughs> um, tailors just began to use gold and silver to line the sleeves, oh. which were slashed or lengthened to let the gold and silver show. Mm-hmm. So then that practice was outlawed in 1472. Um, and then in 1488, Venetian legislatures instructed that their enforcement officers to report all changes in the fashion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Um, a century later, so at the end of the 1500s, um, the, in Genoa, they required their tailor's guild to register new designs for approval by censors. Oh. Yeah. Okay, what were they... I guess we probably don't know what set that off, but it certainly sounds intriguing. Yes. Well, right, this is the... Like, 
it's hard to police these laws. Mm-hmm. People, you say one thing and they do another. So, for example, women aren't allowed to wear this stuff anymore. Well, then they're, they just line their garments with, but then they slash the sleeves so you can see it, or they lengthen them so you can see the lining, mm-hmm. which is how those fashions start to come in, which is brilliant. And these are fashions a lot you see in a lot of movies that sort of at least try to do kind of medieval-ish yeah. dress, uh, which are the big sleeves and you can see the linings and the slashed stuff. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Venice in, even before all this, so a hundred years before all this, in 1334, Venice tried to pass like a huge sort of bunch of sumptuary laws. Um, and they got repealed a few years later in 1339, Hmm. like five years later, um, because they had led to confusion and civic impediment. (laughs) Um, and... Hughes says that that is a rare example um, of pulling back from these laws. Yes. Um, But five citizens of Padua, or Padova, but Padua, um, two of whom were knights, accused the sumptuary law of 1504 of infringing liberty, damaging the city, and destroying marriage and lineage. Mm -hmm. Um, But unfortunately, its supporters carried the day. Oh. So there is absolutely right, there are absolutely fights about this. <laughs> um and there there are arguments about these things, mm-hmm. right? Um but one of the big um sort of fights <laughs> um is over buttons. Ooh. Um so in the fourteen hundreds they start this is Italy, right? They start outlawing expensive buttons. Okay. Right? So, um, maybe, right, buttons are another way. Maybe you're not allowed to wear certain kinds of jewelry or this and that, but you can start fancy buttons on your clothing, mm-hmm. right? Ornamentation, right? You can, you find it wherever you can. So, um, they start listing off all the types of buttons now that you're not allowed to have. Okay. <laughs> um, also, headdresses mm-hmm. and head ornaments, Right? So they start specifying all the kinds that you are no longer allowed to wear, mm. right? Um, and that's another thing, just like slashing your sleeves and using gold and silver as lining, right? People, of course, you're all, people are always getting around these laws. Um, and, you know, that's why <laughs> you, and then you pass more and then you specify and then you do this, that, and the other. Um, but so both Venice and Genoa um, produce at least eight pieces of extensive sumptuary legislation. This is used um, between 1450 and 1500. Um, it says the rest of Italy doesn't lag far behind, but they're kind of out in front. <laughs> um, it's been calculated that Italian cities produced 83 substantial sumptuary laws in the 15th century. Wow. More than double that number in each of the following two centuries. Right. So in the 1400s, and this is, of course, right, huge trade growing wealth. I mean, think of what's going mm-hmm. on in Venice. I mean, it's, you know, the sort of New York slash Paris of its day. Yeah. Um, I mean, it still kind of is, but absolutely, right? This is where it's all happening. It, I mean, Fashion Week back then would have happened in Venice, of course, not Milan. Um, yeah, so they are, <laughs> they're fighting this tooth and nail because also um, they have a huge sort of international population. Mm-hmm. Right? And so people are getting styles from all over the place and incorporating them. And Venice is really trying to crack down on this. Mm-hmm. Basically. Um, so, <laughs> um, in the 1500s, um, the Venetian Senate is still passing um, all of these laws. Um, and Basically, Hughes is like, you know, even as Venice is, like, fighting wars against Turkey and stuff, the Senate is debating dress materials, the size and design of sleeves, fringes and ornaments, belts and headdresses, shoes and slippers, home furnishings, and bed linens. Wow. Yeah. So, um... (laughs) Even bed linens, huh? Yeah. So this really is a kind of attack on, definitely on, not just, but definitely including female fashion. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and also what you're allowed to have, you know, if you think about linen thread counts on your sheets, that's a form of luxury. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, you know, I didn't think sheets. anybody would be checking. Well, I mean, but obviously, 
you know, if you can afford silk sheets, you probably have servants. And so, mm. yes, it's a real policing of the types of luxury people are allowed to have, despite kind of all the wealth and everything else that is flowing through through Venice. Yeah. Um, so the one of the first, maybe the first Italian sumptuary law is actually from Genoa. It's 1157. Mm-hmm. Wow. Which is pretty early. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it bans the use of rich furs. Um, but when the sumptuary laws are reissued a few years later, so that was 1157, mm-hmm. they're reissued like four years later in 1161, um, they leave off the fur part. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Which says something clearly about presumably um, <laughs> how people felt about their fur. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Hughes says that this, um, these laws are some of the first restrictions on dress since the Carolingian Empire. Hmm. Right. Which, again, is probably a way of sort of saying, you know, the Middle Ages is building up that level of wealth again. Yeah. Um, so it's been a while. But once you get there, then suddenly people start to get worried about hierarchy and people who are essentially merchants being able to buy wherever they want. Um, yeah. So Siena, uh, in 1249, issues a law regulating trains on dresses. Ooh. Yes. Um, so, yeah, a lot of these are very clearly female fashion, um, which is how we think of them. <laughs> yeah, so the trains on dresses, of course... We all still know what that means. I mean, we all have seen, like, recent or recent-ish in the past decades or whatever, royal weddings, stuff like that. Um, yeah. You know, you can't go around with something that has to be carried by, like, five women or whatever. Um, that's just me saying that. But obviously, right, that's that's sort of the point. Uh, Bologna has a similar decree in 1260. Um, and then more extensive laws in 1288. Um, Florence's first sumptuary law is in 1281, although it's now lost, so we don't know exactly what it said. Okay. Um, but, um, in 1195, the church, um, forbids, um, churchmen slashing the hems of their robes. Ooh. Um, yeah. And, uh, Louis VIII in 1229 starts passing laws to control what his nobles are wearing. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So this is the sort of growth of, of all these things. Um, Philip the Fair in 1294 regulates dress and furnishing, furnishings. Um, yeah. So this is sort of the, the growth, the growth of a lot of these laws. Um, I was about the time England starts passing them. England is kind of very specific about about everything that's happening, um, but yeah. So this is sort of the the sensibility. Um, women, again, this is sort of from Hughes. A lot of this, but um, that women definitely do kind of feel that some of these are aimed at them, <laughs> um, and so women sort of, you know, find allies. Um, so in Siena, in December 1291, um, women get a few days relaxation of sumptuary laws mm-hmm. that forbid them from wearing crowns and garlands of gold and p- pearls. Um, so they, you know, presumably get a few days to celebrate and wear stuff that they want to. Mm-hmm. That's Count Robert of Arras. Um, does that. We've talked about him before, I think, and Arras. Um, so... Yeah, right. It kind of depends clearly on, in some ways, who's in charge and how much they care. <laughs> right? Are they more interested in letting people kind of have fun and do what they want? Or are they more interested in controlling kind of the social hierarchy? Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, because we're also looking at women, there's a little bit less, um, you know, presumably the sense of social control is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit less of a sense of controlling what men are doing sometimes. I mean, it's also men because you're sort of controlling what they can spend on their wives, what their wives are allowed to wear. Um, But essentially, if you find a duke who's like, eh, let the women wear what they want. I want to see them wearing fancy stuff. You know, you're more likely to get some changes than 
if it's really about sort of controlling the social hierarchy that of men, in which case, you know, <laughs> right. Um, less likely to have any of those relaxed. Yeah. Um, but there's um, some others, some of them are, are hierarchy. So there's a sense of Sienna's, you know, um, law about trains on women's dresses there might also be a little bit of a sense of um, them actually trying to rein in the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, although in 1277, um, they forbid servants from wearing certain things. Right. So there still is definitely this kind of, this hierarchy. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, there's also <laughs> laws about Interestingly, there are laws sometimes that govern weddings and funerals. We talked a little bit about, we haven't talked about funerals, but a little bit about weddings. Mm -hmm. You know, people didn't wear white, stuff like that. Um, There were some laws about what you were allowed to wear. You aren't allowed exceptions, really, for these things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you don't suddenly get a long train or something for your wedding. Um, Also, there were laws about um, what you could wear to be buried in. What? Really? Um, yeah. Um, Bologna had a law in 1289 um, that knights and doctors of law might go to their graves in scarlet. Um, so apparently, <laughs> at some you know, you were allowed to be kind of dressed in fancy, your fancy best, mm-hmm. to get buried in it. <laughs> Is it. It reminds me of, like, when you go to a graduation ceremony and all the different departments have like their hereditary colors of stole or whatever yep yeah yeah now i want to find like the last graduation program i have and see how it lines up like if it's scarlet for the medical school or what it was i used to know all this um i think medicine's dark green oh really i have to think about that Hmm. and what's law i don't know um the phd is dark blue yeah, I used to kind of know all the colors. Yeah. But, um, and then, of course, there's the school colors. Yeah. Which is fun. So you look at everyone's robes, you try to figure out where they went. Uh, Stanford is a great red, for example. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see, the MFA is white. I think. This is my vague memories from okay. having sat through a lot of those ceremonies. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, but anyway, so um, so there are some regulations about what you can and cannot be wearing. Now, obviously, if you weren't the right class, you wouldn't be allowed to be buried in something like that. Mm. You weren't supposed to be wearing it anyway, but you also can't be buried in it, right? Right. <laughs> you can't have you misrepresenting who you were after yes. death. Right. And if you think about this, obviously, we take burial goods really seriously. So there's a... There's some point to this. Yeah. Um... It's speaking of like scarlet. Um, in 13th century Spain, no one other than the king was legally permitted to wear a scarlet rain cape. That's yes. a rain, like R A I N. Yes, like a raincoat. Yes, cape. a scarlet rain. Okay. Coat. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a cape. But yes, cool. Um, you know, so you could tell it was him, presumably. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and Florence, uh, 1356. This is before we get the different buttons that are, well, around the time we get the buttons that are legal. Um, it's illegal to have buttons at all without corresponding button holes. Ooh. Yes. Okay. Um, which, of course, is about, again, their use as ornamentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can't just be having buttons. Right. <laughs> like in Our Flag yeah. Means Death, you have that the flag with a skull yeah. vomiting buttons onto a all skeleton. So. Yes. Yes. That's fancy. Yes, it's very fancy. Yeah. And they're pirates, so they have no regard for law. Exactly. That's why it's allowed. <laughs> or not allowed, rather. But, yes. yes. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, um, also, worth pointing out, um, the so this is all the kind of stuff we're used to. Um, now I figured I'd talk some about... Uh, we kind of know, obviously... In the Middle Ages, generally what people are wearing, right? They're wearing tunics of different lengths. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, and then they're wearing, we talked about the shoes, the pointy shoes, of which, again, sumptuary laws show up to be like, how long can these shoes be? Right. <laughs> um, and that remains a thing, of course. Like, 
Um, but there are even there even end up being laws about um, shoes versus boots. So hmm. shoes are generally viewed as more expensive than boots, which would be plainer. I mean, as today, more right hard wearing, etc. Um, less fashionable, of course, not of course, but potentially. <laughs> and then, of course, you have breeches and hose eventually, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I figured I'd talk just a little bit about. Um, there's a great um, article about this is sort of back in England again. Yeah. <laughs> but specifically religious dress. So the article is by Alison Fizzard. Uh, it's called Shoes, Boots, Leggings, and Cloaks. The Augustinian Canons and Dress and Later Medieval England. Okay. Um, and basically, this is about Augustinian Canons. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are priests, but not monks. Okay. Necessarily. I mean, that's sort of the point. Um, but they... <laughs> um, laws start being passed about what they're allowed to wear. And clearly... This is, it's funny, because this is sort of the inverse of the laws, of the sumptuary laws aimed at Jews, Mm -hmm. right? Which are to set them apart because we need to be able to recognize, you know, the other. Well, in this case, of course, the point is you have to be able to recognize a religious person when you see one because that's the whole point, right? Sure. Priests and monks and people who are religious orders are modest, they dress differently, you need to be able to tell. <laughs> and ideally, you should be able to tell what order they belong to by looking at them. Mm-hmm. And that's true to this day. I mean, you can tell a Benedictine monk. Not always. Some of them just go around in, like, really faded t-shirts and blue jeans. Um, but for those who still wear traditional dress, you can tell a Franciscan from a Benedictine, from a Dominican, and so on. Mm-hmm. Right? They do wear different colors, <laughs> basically. Um Augustinians become known as for wearing black. Right. Um, but this wasn't codified originally. Um, and so in 1374, um, there's an attempt to codify it. Mm-hmm. What they're wearing. Um, and one of the things that happens um, in Northampton, in England, um, the chapter issues a decree warning (laughs) that some of canons are at least ostensibly breaking the rule of St. Augustine um, and therefore diminishing support for the order in the general public Mm -hmm. um, because they are wearing stuff they shouldn't be wearing, which is to say they're starting to fall prey to modern fashion. Oh, no. Particularly, yes, the abuse of shoes and hose. Okay. Yes. Um... And so this is shoes as opposed to, like, boots, Mm -hmm. right? So these are some of these, you know, they're starting to wear the nice leather, like, pointy shoes. Everyone (laughs) likes a nice pair of shoes, right? I know, right? Um, But anyway, so they're falling prey to modern fashions, and also they're starting to wear hose. Um, And, of course, this is... So I figured we'd talk a little bit about hose, because it's one of these things everyone kind of knows about the Middle Ages, but also not complete. Right. I feel like we all hear that and we think of, like, tights or something. Yes. And that like is, of not course, fair, not accurate. <laughs> right. Because In two we've ways. seen, like, yeah. a thousand plays, right? Where yes. they don't have hose. They're, like, a community right. theater production. And so they are yeah. like, here's some either, like, black leggings or, you know, some black right. tights. Go do right. it. Yes. So needless to say, one of the big differences between medieval hose and modern is that medieval stuff was not elastic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It could be fitted, of course, but it was not elastic. Um, That is an important distinction. Right. (laughs) Um, Nylon. So that's, yes, that's one important distinction. The other is that originally hose were not joined. So uh, it's more like it's two separate legs. Okay. Right? And you roll them all the way up and then you lace them into your 
clothes. So they sort of, and you're wearing kind of underwear, mm-hmm. linen underpants or whatever, right? And you lace your hose like into your doublet and that's how they're held up. Okay. And then, but it's like one leg and one leg and then you're wearing underwear and you wear your tunic over it and stuff like that. Um, and then eventually uh, you do start to get joined hose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's possible, and this is the fun part, um, it's possible that the um, codpiece mm-hmm. essentially started as um, the piece of cloth that covered that area between the hose. Ah. Sure. Right? So you started to create joined hose that would also have, like, a butt... Right, like, yeah. I mean, more like tights, but still not elastic. Um, that that sort of the area, right? You, you know, going between split hose and then creating joined hose. That that area sort of th- that that's kind of how the cod piece is born. Mm. Is originally like what you need to cover that area, and then eventually it kind of becomes its own thing. Right, right. Um, and so uh, joined hose uh, show up in the. 14th century, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes sort of what we think of generally when we think of hose, right? Where it's all one piece and you pull it up, you still lace it into your, like, doublet to hold it up. Right. Um, but yeah, that becomes sort of, um, what we think of. But before that, yeah, it's separate legs, which we also kind of know, because obviously that's where, like, garters come from. Oh, sure, yeah. Right? <laughs> it's a way to hold up your help bidding. hold it up yeah. and tie it so it's not bunching and, you know, things like that. Um, so this is clearly kind of part of this argument here, right? Um, Augustinians are starting to wear hose of a type they shouldn't be wearing. Um, and they they do get a sort of clothes allowance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, so this complaint that they're starting to wear things that are too kind of, um, you know, popular fashion, basically. Um, and interestingly, f- again, Fourth Lateran, to come back mm-hmm. to Fourth Lateran, um, among the, sum- the other sumptuary laws, of course, as I said, some of them are, of course, aimed at, at Jews. Um, they do also specify... Um, some of the things that clerics are not allowed to wear. So they're not allowed to wear garments that are too short. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, they're not supposed to wear red and green. All right. They're not supposed to wear pointed toe or embroidered shoes. Ah. Uh. Yeah. Um, and there are some other things, like, sort of, you know, of aspects of fashion. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of the, you know, some of the things... Um, now that being said, of course, fashions develop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so monks do wear linen garments, um, with linings and with fur and various things. They're not supposed to necessarily, but, um, you know, they get, there's a sort of point made, um, Chaucer's religious characters mm-hmm. <laughs> who are famously not pillars of I don't know. Their communities, exactly? I don't know. That's why you're not quite the way... They are not role models for people seeking a religious life. Right. That's probably the way to put it. Um, that when, for example, the monk's clothing is described, that in a technical sense, most of what he's wearing is not outlawed. Okay. For his, you know, for him. You know, by outlaw, Like, most of the stuff he is technically allowed to wear... That being said, that doesn't mean he should be. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and the same kind of goes for the priors, right? And of course, that's really Chaucer's point. Not that these are outliers, not that these figures are outliers mm-hmm. in what they're wearing, but that they come from communities who are not really supposed to be wearing this stuff, mm-hmm. right? That what I said sort of some time ago at this point. Um, the whole point of li- living a religious life is supposed to be somewhat self-evident in how you behave. Yes. Right? 
And that behavior would include what you wear. Mm-hmm. And that's sense, what you wear would be modest and pious and religious. And therefore not necessarily fashionable. Right. You're <laughs> supposed to be above all that, basically. Yes. And of course, that a lot of them are not. And this is the big point where we come back to, which is very clearly for Chaucer again, as for many, um, the Benedictines, of course, the Priors and Chaucer, right? But also, you know, um, they tend to be noble, mm-hmm. right? They come from wealthy families. That's how you buy your way in to a monastery or a convent, right? right. You basically need a huge dowry. So these are people who are who come from the wealthy classes who are allowed to wear all this stuff. They don't want to give it up. Right. Right. So <laughs> that's a bit of a, uh, let's say, stumbling block there <laughs> for that whole religious lifestyle thing. That thing. Uh, particularly given, again, you have to be wealthy, you have to come from these classes, you have to bring all this money with you when you join. Yeah, I mean, some people are maybe super into not wearing that stuff, but a lot of people do not want to give it up. That's mm-hmm. not why they join. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that sort of some of these laws run into. Um, but also, <laughs> um, the Augustinians, it turns out, there were Augustinians in England who were wearing white. Oh. And they're basically told not to, that their color is supposed to be black, and they get someone annoyed. Okay. Um, and the funny thing is that there are other groups who do wear white. Mm-hmm. So it's unclear how the Augustinians who wear white think they're distinguishing themselves from other orders. Right. <laughs> um, in addition to all the things we said, of course, right? One of the reasons they're not supposed to wear white is that they're all supposed to kind of look alike. And their color is supposed to kind of be black. But also, again, one of the reasons that their color would be black is because it is theoretically a modest color. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but that this becomes a point of contention <laughs> with the Augustine. Um, and so um, you have some groups pointing out that the traditional footwear of their order had been kind of leggings and high boots. So plain footwear that shows humility. Right? Yeah. Um, and someone had, you know, one chapter had decreed that none of his canons could go outside without wearing this, you know, Mm -hmm. like high boots and so on. Um, however, some canons continued in public places, for example, in the city of London, to wear tight hose and pointed toe shoes laced in various ways. Oh, goodness. Yes. Yes, yes. Um, so... (laughs) This becomes a whole other side, right? Is the kind of reminder that this is something that wasn't covered as much in the sumptuary laws that we discussed last time, and something you don't think about quite in the same way. Mm-hmm. But of course, remembering that these people are of those classes generally, where they would be allowed to wear a lot of that stuff, but they're being told not to because they're religious, it does not always sit well. Yeah. Um, but also, we had not mentioned before things like hose. Um, And so, yes, this is the reminder. There are so many jokes about this in Shakespeare. And these are some of the few jokes that really it's hard to translate today. Because, um, yeah, today tights, first of all, are tights, which are, again, different. These aren't tights. But also, they're elastic. Right. And so Shakespeare's whole thing about, he has a lot of comments about how, right, or jokes kind of related to the fact that you had to lace your hose into your doublet and what happens like right if those are cut and your pants fall down (laughs) we still have the joke like we definitely still have tons of jokes about your pants falling down right but slightly different right today it's because of a belt or suspenders yeah right suspenders someone yanks them um but we don't have the same sense of you know if your laces break it's on your shoes Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Not on your pants. Yeah. Um, and so that's one of those things that is just hard. It's a little bit harder to think about, particularly because, yes, when we see shows generally, yeah, people are wearing some variation on tights that are elastic. Mm-hmm. Even if they're not tights, even if they're made out of cloth, they're still probably going to be elastic. Yeah. Or elastic-ish, right? Because that is just the easier way to do it today. You're not actually going to ask an actor, particularly if they're going to be quick changes, to lace their hose into their clothes. Oh, uh, like, yes. 
that would take forever. And you wouldn't be able to go to the bathroom during intermission, probably. And I don't even know what all. Yeah. So that's that's a whole other thing. But also, yeah, that they used to be two separate legs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the piece in the middle for men, that this is probably where the, the cod piece eventually comes from, is that, that piece of cloth. Um, also, of course, we mentioned, like, some of the colors that, you know, clerks aren't supposed to be wearing. Um, this is the reminder, again, there's some colors we talked about last time that people don't get to wear. Purple, maybe scarlet, gold, and silver. Um, but people will do things like make a lining of that. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, slash your sleeves, have longer sleeves. So that's where some of these fashions come from, right? When you're like, why do they have those giant, huge sleeves? Mm-hmm. It's because you're showing off the lining, because maybe you're not really supposed to be wearing that, mm-hmm. but you're not wearing it. It's just the lining. But now you have created a sleeve in such a way that everyone can see it, <laughs> right? As with some things that might seem ridiculous, there is absolutely a point. Yeah. Um, and so that is sort of the reminder of the, yeah, the sleeves. I know that's that's a thing that obviously is fairly well known and can seem weird, particularly because, again, depending on how much money a production, modern production might have, it might not be lined. Mm-hmm. Right? So it might just be a huge sleeve, but it's just the one piece of cloth. Yeah. Which, of course, it would never have been. Like, that completely defeats the purpose of having a big sleeve. The whole point is the lining that might be something you're not supposed to be wearing. Either a cloth, type of cloth you're not supposed to be wearing or a color you're not supposed to be wearing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you kind of sneak it in there. Yes. Um, yeah. And so tailors, of course, are then, as we talked about, potentially banned from making this stuff. So they have to find other ways to do it. Whew. Anyway, um, the, so that's kind of, these are the major things, right? Um, the final thing probably to comment on is that basically, right, shoes, hose, leggings, um, tunics, tunics come in a wide variety of lengths. Mm-hmm. This is, of course, the point. You're supposed to wear a modest length, but sometimes people wear short ones. <laughs> um, and depending on how wealthy you are, of course, again, you might be able to have it embroidered, dyed any number of fancy colors. That, of course, is the goal. Yeah. That is the point. Um, and one of the other things that changes armor is that a completely different subject. Mm-hmm. So that's why we're not covering armor in a fashion episode, because... Uh, that's its own thing. Okay. <laughs> Medieval armor is its own thing. But we should mention that, of course, there is uh, there is still fashion related to it. And so, for example, the knights, if you are a real knight, which is, say, noble, mm-hmm. so not just a soldier who wears chainmail type of knight, but <laughs> a high-class genuine knight, um... You wear a surcoat, um, and that is going to be super fancy, um, because the whole point is that it has all of your stuff on it. That's how you are identified on the battlefield. Oh, okay. And you wear it over your um, chainmail, basically. Mm-hmm. So this is also a little before, like, sort of, what we think of armor, we think of plate armor. Yeah. Um, but there's a period that not everyone is wearing that type of armor. You're wearing more kind of chain mail mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, and you would wear your surcoat over it. Um, and it would be embroidered with, like, you know, it's dyed and embroidered with your coat of arms. Right. So you're sort of instantaneously recognizable on the battlefield because of your your jupon or your surcoat or whatever it is you're wearing. That seems fair. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's... You know, so fashion doesn't disappear on the battlefield. <laughs> um, now, obviously, there's, like, dress... There is dress armor and things, but mm-hmm. in the Middle Ages, like, princes and knights are fighting. Right. Like, they don't... There's no such thing as just ceremonial. You might be buried with a sword that's kind of only ceremonial, but mm-hmm. really, you know, you're fighting in your stuff. Um, and so, yeah, your surcoat is going to see some use. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's... But that's the point that it, so it identifies you because obviously if you're just a knight in sort of chainmail, even if you're wearing something under that, it doesn't, yeah, it's hard to, um, but as we get sort of plate armor and stuff, then of course, right, 
your shield. You might have a standard bearer. Your horse might even be decorated with your stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but yeah, but that's so. But this is a very famous thing, like in most medieval illustrations of knights. You can see them, they're kind of wearing their chainmail, and over it, they're wearing this, their surcoat. Yeah. And it has their colors. Yep. Yeah, so those are also super fashionable, to be fair, but also utility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that people know who you are. Yes, yes. Uh, but there's some good examples, like real examples that are still around. Um, I think, like, the the black, there's one by that the, the black belonged to the black prince. Oh, it's around. Okay. Is it one he actually wore in battle? I don't know about that. Probably not, because he might not have survived. But maybe. I don't know. But um but it's an example of the sort of thing that he would have worn. Sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Um But yeah. But otherwise, yeah, knights knights are kind of their own their own thing. Mm-hmm. Obviously. But yes. So yeah, for Fashion Week. Um, thinking about all of the things that you shouldn't wear versus the things you should. Um obviously most of the Knowledge we have about what people did and didn't wear comes from two things, and that's imagery. Right. Right. Um, And records of the sort of cloth people bought Mm -hmm. and trade records. Right. And then finally, sumptuary laws. Right. If you're telling people they shouldn't wear things, it means they are wearing them. Right. (laughs) So it's a great way to know what people are wearing. Um, Yeah. Pointed toe shoes. Um especially that are sort of embroidered. Um, dyed hose, colors that they shouldn't be dyed for whatever, you know, rank you are. Um, maybe you're not even supposed to be wearing hose. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, ornamentation. So, yeah, embroidery, buttons. Um, buttons don't get enough love these days. But yes, mm-hmm. um, the idea that you shouldn't, that you have to have buttonholes. I feel like that's actually... That's something that's lasted a little bit longer even into modern fashion. It's like mm-hmm. the extent to which the extent to which um it's sort of more fashionable if all your buttons work. Right. Like if you're buying a oh. suit coat or something. Yeah. Yeah. That all of them actually do work mm-hmm. even if you only button X number of them. Yeah. But that you don't have just buttons for ornamentation. Yeah. Which is a weird kind of reminder of just how old that idea is mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and how long we've had feelings about it. Whether or not buttons should be just ornamentation. Yes. Yes. Like 700, 800 years apparently we've cared yeah. about buttons. Um, which is great. Yeah. Um, also, of course, pointed shoes. That's still... I mean, these days mostly just for women. But... Back of the day, obviously, also for men. Um, yeah, how long is the train on your dress? Mm-hmm. There were laws about this for also like six or seven hundred years. <laughs> um, yeah, so a lot of these things, I know we view, we tend to view medieval fashion as very weird. Yeah, I mean, like, but I'm sure part of it is that we think of the high Middle Ages, right. basically, and but also we have some idea that people wore other things before so instead of like a coherent mm-hmm. you know right thing t- things passing from time to time you get it all sort of lumped into say like 1350 mm-hmm. and it's like we're not better about other fashions right if you look at the victorian era like the Right. The way the gowns go from like big <laughs> yeah. skirt to small skirt with big oh, well, sleeves, like bustles and all that stuff. Bustle, yeah. no bustle, a little bustle, yeah. like, and then you know people largely ignore the fact that that happened over seventy years or something. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. But I do think I mean I think every time um, a woman has worn a really large sweater or shirt and sort of blasted over belts. Mm-hmm. And then worn tights or leggings. That's basically a medieval fashion. Yeah. Probably added some pointy leather shoes. Yeah. Right? So, um, it's not as distant in some ways as I think we feel it is when mm-hmm. we first look at it. Um, and it's definitely not all, like, long bell sleeves and Princess Guinevere pointy hats. 
Right. Like a little exactly useless right. little bit of veil trailing off of the top or something. Yes, but it's of course those are the things that stand out because those are the things that are so different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, yeah, that we do think of hose. So yes, they are different from tights because tights are elastic. But obviously, um, the idea that we think of them somehow is so different, even though in some ways they're not. Granted, like we have made it now gendered. So that women do wear tights and men do not. Right. In theory. And of course, that is not true in the Middle Ages. Um, but if you think of it more as leggings, you know, if men wear tight jeans, is it really that different? So. Yes. Uh, arguably. Anyway. <laughs> These are my feelings, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's not, you know, so there isn't quite the same distance that sometimes we, we think there mm-hmm. is. Um, although it can seem that way. Yes. All right. So there we are. Medieval fashion. Okay. Uh, pluses and minuses. Obviously, yeah, a lot of this is still with us. Mm-hmm. Um, so. <laughs> yep. Some story laws. Dress codes. Dress codes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> um, We're going to leave it there because we're just about out of time. Yes. What are the announcements? We have a Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash askmedievalist. We still have a Twitter account, which is at askmedievalist. And you can also search for us using the ask a medievalist hashtag on Mastodon to get any related announcements. I think that's about it. Um, So until next time, make sure you... Pick out the pointiest and most flamboyant of shoes that you possibly can, and keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com.